You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and I am Nate McLennan. We've been talking a lot about new pathways in our campaign to deeply understand more and better options for every learner towards a pathway to productive citizenship, high-wage employment, and economic mobility, as well as a purpose-driven life. Some of the core pillars of these new pathways include unbundled learning ecosystems, how do we credential this learning, and merging them into new school models. So when we unbundle the system, we tap into this rich and varied opportunities of -of out-of-school providers who can not only continue to provide and offer high-quality after-school, summer, homeschool experiences to learners, but can be baked directly into the school system writ large. So the pandemic accelerated these possibilities as families and schools sought out resources to help continue learning during school closures, and the market responded, both by launching new opportunities for learners and micro-schools that took advantage of these opportunities. One of the largest of these providers has been Outschool.com, and we previously highlighted Outschool.com on the podcast when we interviewed the founder, Amir Nathu. Outschool.com links learners from public, private, and home schools to teachers through a virtual platform covering an infinite number of topics. So today in this podcast, I'm joined by Morgan Camus, head of programs at Outschool.org, and Justin Dent, the founding executive director of Outschool.org. This nonprofit branch of Outschool.com is working to ensure not only access to all of Outschool.com's resources to those who are racially or economically marginalized, but now is thinking about how to support the unbundled ecosystem as a whole. So we're super excited about this because we're thinking a lot about all the learning experiences that are out there and how they're often not connected to the formal teaching and learning uh, of schools. And so Excited to learn more about Outschool.org today, and as well as uh, Morgan and Justin's perspective on the future of the unbundled learning space. So welcome, Justin and Morgan. Thanks, Nate. It's awesome to be here with you. So thanks so much for being here. So let's start with your own journeys. Um, Morgan, Justin, what has led you to education? Uh, What has led you on your own journey to where you are today? So maybe, Morgan, start with you and then go to Justin. Sure. I came into education straight from college. So I was a Teacher America Corps member. I taught high school science in rural North Carolina, literally the best job I ever had. Um, And I think more importantly, I stayed in education because kids are magic. And I saw parts of my own story. So I'm an immigrant and a non-native English speaker. And those characteristics were reflected in a lot of the communities I was working with and how those parents, like my own parents, saw education as a means for liberation and quite frankly, choice. So I'm here working alongside Justin and our awesome dot or colleagues trying to do what we can to reconstruct our status quo education systems to better serve all students. I love that kids are magic. It's a great way to start any podcast. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Justin, what, what do you have for us? What was your journey to artschool.org? Yeah, I mean, it, my journey started when I, was a, when I was a kid in school. And, you know, I had a lot of proximity to my mom as she worked to navigate the New York City public education system as a single parent. Um, and saw how challenging it was to do that. Um, and also outside of the education system to provide me all of the out-of-school learning opportunities, who, which I still attribute to this day to allowing me to be in the position that I am. Um, and, you know, quickly I saw that that was an, an outlier in terms of my mom's ability to do a really good job of And when I was in university and college, I decided to uh, kind of become a, a student activist, and that turned into a nonprofit that I ran for the better part of seven years, advocating for first-generation minority students like myself. 
Um, and it's a great kind of privilege and honor to be able to work alongside Morgan and the rest of the team in terms of advocating for families and kids on a day-to-day -day basis at outschool.org. I really appreciate that. So let's start with a big picture. I think most of our listeners understand that outschool.com, huge platform, a lot of visibility, a lot of growth during the, the um, pandemic. Um, a lot of connection of young people to teachers from all over the world, right? So great, great opportunities for learning. So Justin, how does the mission and vision of outschool.com compare to outschool.org? How are they connected? What's the relationship? Um, give us some context. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we both fundamentally believe in outschool's kind of North Star mission, which is to inspire kids to love learning, Right. And that's the idea that students should be able to be in the, in the driver's seat of their, of their learning and that parents um, should also be in the driver's seat and be able to access teachers who teach any and every subject um, that you might not get in a traditional school. Um, Outschool.org similarly believes that uh, inspiring kids to love learning is, our, is a North Star that we aspire to and that kind of that, uh, that defines our programs on a day-to-day on a -day basis. Um, but we also realize from a mission perspective that outschool.com and a lot of edtech and a lot of the other services and programs that strive to do that in the world are paid services. And as a result, they are innately going to exclude a large fraction of, uh, of our society and of learners who need them the most. And so outschool.org's mission is to ensure that learners who experience economic and racial marginalization are not excluded from the mission of inspiring kids to love learning um, and that we are able to to mitigate and to overcome the societal and systemic inequities um, that preclude a lot of uh, our most vulnerable learners from getting access to educational resources that would change their lives. Got it. So uh, it is outschool.org. You're using the outschool.com platform and doing the connections and outreach to make the, the mission come true on your end. Is that, is that a true statement? Yes. And we also connect um, families, learners, and community organizations to providers outside of OutSchool, um, to really any educational services and resources that, um, that allow them to pursue the learning path and journey that they, that they so choose. Um, we quickly realized, right, that providing access to outschool.com is a wonderful solution for a lot of families, but it is not a sufficient solution as we kind of look at how to make the education ecosystem and the ability to navigate these uh, unbundled pathways as equitable as possible. And so outschool is a tool in our toolkit in terms of what we provide. But as Morgan will discuss later, there we support organizations and families use a wide variety of services um, and other products as part of their learning journey. Uh, you know, and that's and that's the nature of equity, right? So a lot of the families who use OutSchool as a paid service are also using it alongside, you know, a handful or if not a dozen of other services. And we want to ensure that the families that we represent who um, might not have that that privilege on their own can uh, have that same level of choice. I appreciate that. So, so, um, so they have they have opportunities to connect in outschool.com, but you're also connecting them to other opportunities to make sure that their needs, specific needs, are being met. So, 
that that leads me and maybe Morgan, you can tackle this one of um, you have a couple signature programs on the, the your, your website right now, this outbridge program and community partner grants. How, how do those work? Help our listeners understand what those uh, programs do in the context of what Justin just said. Yeah, and it's incredibly timely, Nate, because we just closed an RFP that's selecting for our new cohort of community partners. So overwhelmed by the response of organizations that want to take, you know, liberatory learning to its next level, unbundling, unschooling, um, we really pulled from organizations of all shapes and sizes, traditional and non-traditional. So we are toiling away, trying to get through the um, influx of applications, really excited to welcome this new cohort in the fall. And what we're asking them to do is sort of pick one or both of our two, as you mentioned, signature programs. So the first we're calling Class Connect. Um, and that, I guess, is sort of more legacy because we've been doing it since the beginning of OutSchool.org, where we partner with organizations who have a gap in the electives or enrichment they would like to provide. So maybe you have um, you know, a set amount of students that you serve and you, you know, focus on art and music, but you'd really love to offer Japanese or you'd really love to offer survival skills or cooking or lots of other things based on the unique talents and interests of your kids. And so you would want to be part of our Class Connect program because we offer personalized enrichment classes just for you, right? So we tailor them to your specific community of learners um, and we can sort of organize it as you see fit. It might be organized around summer. It might be organized around spring break or a more traditional school year. So Class Connect are sort of personalized elective classes just for your students that you're bringing as part of the program. Are you drawing from outschool.com's huge resources to then personalize it? Or are you actually finding you have to build even more, solicit more educators for that particular community, those particular communities? I'm just curious about that. Yeah. Absolutely. So we do draw on outschool.com. They have 140,000 classes and that's wonderful and excellent. And we've also made partners with other content providers. So one that our families just are crazy about and we are too, um, is Reconstruction. So Reconstruction provides identity affirming um, content, mostly around sort of like the Black cultural experience to specifically Black students. So many of our class connects are also Reconstruction classes. So we broaden our library to be more than just out-school classes, but also bring in other high-quality affirming content providers. Awesome. Great. Okay. So that's one area. And then the next? Yep. So that's Class Connect. And then our sort of newest offering we're calling Outbridge. And so Outbridge specifically serves families. And what we want to do is increase a family's ability to have an opinion and agency to craft personalized learning experiences for their kid. The difference about Outbridge is that that also includes in-person activities. So we provide funds um, to these families and navigation support, as you were saying, to like navigate this ecosystem of unbundling. So let's say a child is really interested in a specific area. Let's say it's, you know, science. They're able to use those funds and go on our sort of curated website to pick not just online classes that are connected to STEM or science-based learning, but also place-based community organizations that also do the same thing. There might be a YMCA science camp in their neighborhood. There might be an after-school you know, STEM um, club that the kids can join. So we marry the robustness of an online learning ecosystem with a place-based ecosystem and then help families try and pick and choose in a way that feels affirming and also coherent. So are you then, let, let's maybe, and maybe this may not be the right example, but you feature Engage Detroit, really awesome partnership. 
um, it, using that example or any other example, the, the place-based opportunities, are you doing the, the research to figure out what place-based opportunities are available in, say, Detroit or whatever the case may be? Or is, that, is your partner doing that to draw them into and then you're able to put them up on your website? How does that work? Yeah. Justin, do you want to speak to that since you were sort of at the genesis of the Engage Detroit partnership when you and Bernita were on the South by panel together? Yeah, gladly. Um, so Nate, we, we allow and work with our partner. So in the case of Engage Detroit, Engage Detroit to decide and define which, um, which organizations and which uh, place-based providers are part of that experience. Um, you know, and that's because we fundamentally believe in the community's ability to, um, to source and define um, what the experiences look like. And what we have found, and Morgan will touch on this more and we'll touch on this more in conversation, is that the community aspect of having kids and families navigate their learning journeys together is really what families are looking for as they as they work to navigate an unbundled learning ecosystem. Um, and so for us, it's been really important and really, and really it's been like the genesis of the program to have families have a say in terms of what place-based providers are part of the experience. Yeah, that makes total sense. And it, I mean, I would think research and also just common sense dictates like people want to do things that they are interested in and that they are connected to and understand, right? That's valuing their own lived experience uh, rather than us telling them uh, what they should be interested in. And just to piggyback on that, Nate, so I think what we found is that we can curate all of the resources and give, you know, sort of our stamp of approval, but it's this ability for community members and parents in particular to talk to each other. So one of the sort of cornerstone activities that we sort of stumbled our way into and has continued to be such a big part of Outbridge are these like community events. And so Engage Detroit, Bernina already had a community. This came because of, you know, the pandemic and families really wanted to reclaim agency over their kids' education. And so, you know, what started as 12 families is now 200 families. So Bernita already has a community. But what we were able to support her in is like bringing those families together with this talk of like unbundling and selecting and purchasing um, experiences in the local Detroit ecosystem. And so, you know, we would bring them together at the bowling alley or the movie theater, sort of once a month, we'd bring these folks together and say, well, what did you spend your funds on, you know, last week? Or we went to this YMCA, did you like this basketball camp or that basketball camp? And it's like the exchange of ideas and experiences between parents that really validate whether or not that experience is a right fit for their child, right? They trust inherently in each other in that neighborhood wisdom. So that was one of the things that we learned when we did Outbridge with Bernita is like the the power of the collective when people are together sort of sharing their recommendations and experiences. Can you imagine this? So, and again, it makes total sense and it feels like every community needs something like this, which I'm sure you would love, right? So outschool.org, like as a support mechanism to empower and enable local communities to really understand their, their choices about learning. It, it, do you feel that it's, it is, uh, scalable, easily scalable from city to city to city as you get better and better at this? Um, or is it distinctly different in each place uh, with, its, with its distinct challenges? Justin, maybe, I don't know if you want to tackle that one or, or Morgan. Happily. Yeah, I think we're, we're learning and we're testing that. And I think we are actively engaged in that conversation ourselves. I think what we know is that every community is unique. Right. I mean, communities within communities, regardless of their place or their city, are unique because people come together for different purposes, different reasons, and have different ways of being. 
together. Um, but what we do know and through our work is that there is a similar aspiration and there is a similar commitment to their kids and to their learners and to community. And so our thesis is that we will be able to scale it. We know that it won't be as um, resource and intensive as it has been with partners like Engage Detroit, where we have been on the ground with them on a day-to-day -day basis, helping them to run their events. Um, but that's, but we also know that there are, we're starting to pull out what those kind of fundamental themes are that are, um, that are present across all of the communities that we work with and trying to figure out how we build an infrastructure that is scalable and supports those kind of core elements of what communities need the most in order to have that infrastructure behind them. Um, and we are seeing and finding that there are enough themes there that would allow us to, to scale this across, um, across all cities uh, in the country. And because it really is community driven, right? And I think that's the part of it that allows it to scale is that there needs to be an infrastructure for community, but we're not trying to build communities where they don't already exist. We're trying to empower communities that have shared and similar aspirations with an infrastructure behind them um, because there's not a system there for that currently. Yeah, it seems that when we are writing a bunch about, when we are writing a bunch about unbundling, we're thinking about one of the key elements of unbundling is this curation aspect that that I think you're both keying in on is that parents know that the, what they're getting for their children is not what they want. They, they want their, as you said, it inspire kids to love learning. They want their children to be inspired to learn, but you're offering a mechanism that's community driven that allows some sort of curation for and connection for them to see what the possibilities are uh, beyond what they could do before uh, in their communities. So I appreciate that. And I'm wondering, you know, the other, one of the other pieces that, that you haven't spoken about is, looks like you are playing a little bit in the, the high dosage tutoring um, concept in, in Charleston County after school programs. Is that a, a side project? Um, did it work? Is that something you want to continue to invest in? Are, are, are your communities asking for it? Morgan? Sure. Yeah. So we have been partnering um, with Charleston County here in South Carolina for about two years now, and it's sort of the same vein, right? A lot of schools recognize the need for sort of high dosage, high quality tutoring after school, and they, fa and they face mostly like a staffing issue, right? It's really hard to bring either near peers or teachers or, you know, paraprofessionals in after school to give kids that level of one to one or one to small group attention. And so what we had at OutSchool was sort of a question. I mean, we have a surplus of really excellent high quality teachers because we have this outschool.com platform. Could we tweak sort of the recipe of what it means to do high dosage tutoring, but have the instruction be virtual, right? So keep the 90 minutes, keep the consistent educator, keep the high quality curriculum, but instead of the person sitting across from you, the lunch table, you have your person sort of piping in, you know, via Zoom, via out school. And so we just had like a, a question, like, could we make that modification and still get significant results in student growth? And the answer was yes. So in Charleston, um, we worked with a group of elementary school students after school, and we kept the 90 minutes. We did both math and ELA in the elementary age subjects, and we provided a high quality out school educator um, in front of those children two or three times a week, depending on class schedules. And because this is sort of like purely academic, the kids were already taking iReady scores. We took before and after, and we were able to compare those students against, against those who weren't in the high dosage tutoring intervention. And you could see that the gains were significantly 
stronger with the kids who participated in this outschool.org program. So the answer is yes. I think what um, what we found are that there are community organizations where this is still a high need area for families. We're in this back to school season right now where families may want to catch up on the summer learning loss. So like I mentioned, we have this RFP out. And so there are schools um, and districts writing in asking if they could use their grant funds for, again, like a personalized class connect offering, but specifically around core academics, right? So class connect could be academic in nature, like tutoring, or it could be elective enrichment like Japanese. The whole idea is that it's personalized and tailored and consistent to that group of kids, which our high dosage tutoring model does. Uh, that's great. I appreciate the results there. It's, it's nice to get before and after and see that it actually works. And we know that there's a lot of, I think across the country, we're seeing the impacts of high dosage tutoring and it's hard to scale, right? So figuring out the ways to do it well through maybe your platform is, is a super effective opportunity for any of the communities that, that you work with. So Morgan, before we pivot to I have some big picture questions about unbundling for Justin, but one more question about other partnership stories that just come to your mind as things you talk about because, boy, the impact was, was, was really significant um, for the communities and the learners uh, that you'd like to share. Yeah, I love telling stories. So I'm going to give you one of each key, sort of key program. I'll start with Outbridge. Um, and talk about this little boy named Amias. So Amias is an engaged Detroit from Bernita's organization in Detroit, an engaged Detroit family, and his mom, Leah, is a powerhouse. So she started homeschooling during COVID, and that's when she discovered the engaged Detroit community. And her little precocious nine-year-old Amias also, you know, has a million questions and always wants to know about her job as a medical assistant. And so, you know, uh, Leah will come home with a stethoscope around her neck and he's like, mommy, what is that? What does it do? What do you hear? Will it fit in my ears? And so he, he already had sort of this like natural inclination to be curious about science, all things science. And so when Leah got access to Outbridge, you know, it came with $500 for Amias. And she thought to herself, well, I can really take this spark of Amias's for a ride. And so she went to the learning store and bought a child-sized stethoscope so that he too can hear the heartbeats of his siblings um, and encouraged him to really like lean into that. And then based on where we you know, were able to curate from across the ecosystem, then she got into virtual science small group classes that she found on OutSchool. Then she got the math explorers camp that she found in her neighborhood. And then she realized, well, you know, I should probably like investigate where his other um, sort of academic baseline levels are, right? So then we gave her access to some type of assessment so she could see where Amias is on reading and math as well as science. And then she was like, well, I've got a nine-year-old and he's got the wiggle. So now I'm going to take that $500 and buy a membership to the YMCA for our whole family for health and wellness. And they also do some summer and after-school programming. So she was able to like see the assets that we were able to curate online, but also the wisdom of her neighbors in Detroit and like really build this very robust, unbundled, but coherent pathway for Amaya's to like really lean into mommy, what is that thing around your neck? So that is sort of like the beauty of Outbridge. I um, mean, she got some of her own ideas and then some from her friends. And then on the other side, this like personalized um, class connect experience looks a little different, right? So this is like, you're working as a cohort of learners and we we're working with a grantee last year um, of black homeschoolers right outside of Georgia, they're in Fulton County. And the name of the organization is Heritage Homeschoolers led by Amber O'Neill Johnston, who is incredible, Johnson, excuse me. 
And this is a support group for homeschoolers, black homeschoolers in particular. And what happens is that a lot of these homeschoolers are finding that these learning experiences in their neighborhood sort of cater to white families. And that oftentimes they are the only or one of a very few number of black homeschoolers who are joining these homeschool co-ops. And so Amber already brings her community together, but she really wanted to amplify uh, the offerings that she could, you know, provide to her, her families and her learners. And so she came to uh, outschool.org as a grantee, and we started building a curriculum around different enrichment topics that her kids were really interested in. So this is where we took advantage of what OutSchool has, but then we also borrowed from our friends at Reconstruction. So OutSchool, she gave all the kids wallets, so every kid could sort of operate as independent actors. But in the spirit of collective learning, we stood up private Spanish classes, private coding classes. We know we went over to Reconstruction and they stood up on our behalf, Caribbean cuisine classes, spoken word classes. We did African diaspora classes. And so these kids in like sort of a trimester schedule got to come together and learn something deeply. And some of the classes they just did for six weeks. And then some classes like Spanish, they wanted to do every trimester. Like the kids built their skills in Spanish over the course of sort of a more traditional year-round school calendar. So that was an experience where the kids saw the same kids in class every day, but they were deepening sort of a demonstrable skill that they and their parents really wanted them to learn. Um, so that was sort of like the beauty of Class Connect is that personalized community-based approach to learning. Uh, I, I love the stories. Um, it, it just, it makes me think a lot about all those students out there that could benefit for story, from stories like that. So um, let's, let's jump to the big picture, Justin. Um, I know you both, Morgan and Justin, are thinking about unbundling just like we are. And there, there's certainly a, a micro school movement, homeschool movement that, that's really emerging. It's always been in existence, but it's really blown up, uh, both due to the pandemic, but also due to some legislation that's allowed and freed up funds. Uh, organizations such as yours that is granting funds. Is this for 5% of the population or is this uh, of students or is this for 90% or 95%? Should should this type of unbundled learning really be the core of what school should look like? Or is outschool.org really are you going to focus on those folks that are saying, we don't want to be in the, the traditional model. We want to do something else. And so Justin, I'm sort of curious about your big picture views on 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 that, that the hypothesis of is it for everybody or is it for just some? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question <laughs> and, a, and, a, and an easy one and a tricky one at the same time. And I think that's because learning has always been unbounded, right? Learning has always existed outside of the confines of the, the K through 12 system as we define it. However, we as kind of a system, right, or societal perspective have always put more emphasis on the learning that happens within traditional K-12 or happens within the schoolhouse and not all of the other pieces around it and left that to community actors, families themselves to navigate on their own. And I think the really exciting thing about the unbundled school movement is that it's bringing a magnifying lens to all of the places that learning happens and all of the potential for learning to happen outside of um, just one institution or outside of the kind of system as we know it today. I think that there is a big risk, right, in moving towards a system that is unbundled at its core without a definition of its North Star and to what end, right? Because 
unbundling and having choice is great, right? But it does create a lot more friction, particularly if you are not in a position to navigate this new unbundled ecosystem, right? And we know that it tends to be people who have privilege, right? Whether that is the privilege of economic privilege or the privilege of existing within a community that has really strong information sharing networks that are the ones who are most able to take advantage of the programs, um, such as some of the policy programs that you've mentioned, Nate, as they are available now. And so there's a risk that if we move towards an unbundled system at its core without really being intentional about why we're moving towards that and who stands to possibly be excluded if that is to be the case, that we end up creating a system that actually has more friction and is more exclusionary than it is today. Right, which is not what anybody who is doing this in earnest wants, right? But it is that is the consequence when we're not intentional about why and how we're creating the system. I'm the first to to believe that we need a fundamentally new system, right? But we need a system that starts with a definition of what our North Star is. And that's something that doesn't exist within our system today, right? But I don't believe that we should work toward I don't believe that we can work towards a new system without really defining the the why, right? Um, and what we're trying to change and what is the motive of unbundling. Because I think if we fail to do that, we end up creating something that is potentially more exclusionary than not. Uh, that's super interesting. Yeah, I could see that certainly there is a uh, avalanche and rush towards unbundling and all these school options and parent choice and student choice and, and all on the surface looks great. But if in the process we are just reconstructing exclusionary practices that have already existed, it can make the whole system even worse and harder to navigate and, and, and more um, uh, inequitable. So, yeah, I appreciate that. And so going back to do you see outschool.org, um, is there a place where you're partnering? Are, are, are some of your applicants actual public schools that are looking to just partner in during the school day? Does that continue to be a big part of your partnerships, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we we want to provide access to this type of learning to as many learners as possible, right? And we believe that school, like schools and school systems, are in an amazing position to be able to provide that to to learners, right? I mean, most kids will always be served by the public education system, and that's a great thing. Um, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity to provide students who are in the public education system with opportunities that extend well into their community and well beyond um, what any independent school can provide just as a main of resources, right? It, it, it's a community and, and, and a nationwide and societal effort. Um, and so we think that part of our job and responsibility is to provide that to um, kids who are in, in more traditional schools, as well as those who have decided to take alternative pathways towards learning. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, and it seems that the, all of the, the work that's happening in micro schools and unbundled homeschools, that there are, so homeschools that are taking advantage of unbundled opportunities can continue to percolate and impact and, and um, influence what's happening in the larger public traditional system. And you all are a vehicle to, to do that. So I really appreciate that. You do, Nate, sorry, if I could add, you, could, you do kind of see like the little breadcrumbs of what that looks like. So there are going to be kids always in after school programs. So that's like a very easy place to like 
bring this extra sort of dose of elective or enrichment. And then you start seeing these like very innovative sort of systems or traditional systems that are trying to unbundle at like the class level, right? And I think what we have historically talked about is like dual enrollment, right? Like you can uncouple high school and sort of take some of your classes in high school and then some of it at the community college and you can kind of move your learning across walls and across buildings. And I think what we're seeing in some of these states, they're like, they're trying to figure out what the grain size is that they can tinker, right? So, you know, if you're facing a real staffing shortage, or you're in, you know, a rural part of the country, or, you know, your kids have a really, you know, niche interest, like, what's a way that you can unbundle the elective wheel? What's a way that you can unbundle foreign language instruction, or, you know, all the other sort of ancillary, what we've called electives, a sort of you know, interest-based learning in schools, like how do you bring other providers, other learning experiences in? So we are, you know, through this RFP and Justin said, like we believe that, you know, public institutions are a great thing and they can't continue to be beholden to this like unrealistic expectation of like end-to-end fully integrated, full high quality service. Like that's just really tough. And so if there is a way that we could modularize parts of the school day, or just like reconfigure schedules. Like I think there's a huge opportunity here. And so we're trying to invite conversations around that too. Yeah, that's a really good caveat in my opinion. I think the the idea that, well, A, the where are the small experiments, but also the fact that that great teachers have unbundled everything for a long, long time. You know, when I was in the classroom, I was always thinking about opportunities to access other resources, whether it was people or places, uh, or resources out that were not part of the core curriculum. So, so it's not that it doesn't happen. It's just not systematic yet. And I think what you all are moving is how do you systematize this so that it increases access for everybody, which I really appreciate. But it ties into this. We have a big barrier, which is the Carnegie unit and credits and grading and assessment. So my last sort of technical question before we, we, we close up here is, Morgan, how are you thinking about assessment in all these opportunities? Is it is that part of the model or not part of the model? Does it even matter to the folks that you're working with? Um, what, what does it look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I think no matter what, we think all kids are brilliant, right? And, and like there is such a narrow way of how we ascribe brilliance in the traditional school system. And like that in itself is problematic. So while I think it'd be naive of us not to acknowledge that standardized testing is real and it's probably not going anywhere, I think we could add more conversation around how do you complement that with more robust sort of non-traditional measures. So for something like high doses tutoring, yes, like we wouldn't be doing our work well if we didn't see a growth in iReady or NWEA or MAP scores. Like we have a responsibility to our partners to make sure that high quality instruction is in fact closing gaps. So we hold that very seriously, like with, you know, incredible sobriety. And we also know that interest-based learning around electives and enrichment is more than just, you know, what do you score on a proficiency exam in AP Spanish, if that's what you're taking, right? It's around confidence and curiosity and resilience. And, you know, we're not even just thinking about the kid level in our logic model, but the family level, like what's their level of agency and confidence and comfort in navigating and brokering these unbundled learning experiences. So, you know, we have a logic model for our organization that's at the kid level and at the parent level. Um, It has sort of these like short term and medium term and then these like longer term longitudinal outcomes around kid well-being and kid, you know, post-college and post-secondary success. So all of those things are true. Um, So I think we sort of hold assessment 
to be really a tool and a mirror as to like, what are kids wanting to learn and what are some of the mindset and behavioral uh, changes that we're seeing based on that interest. So we have a lot of surveys that we use. We have, um, we're a tech based sort of tech adjacent, you know, organization. So we have platform data that we can look at around engagement and, you know, attendance and things like that. So it really is sort of a mixed methods approach to identifying our kids learning in areas that are both academic and non-academic. Got it. No, that makes sense. Yeah, it seems like this is something I know we're thinking a lot about in the microschool world is there's a lot of microschools out there and they're assessing, I'm using that term very loosely and broadly in all sorts of ways. Um, and the question is, how do you ultimately determine efficacy? And is that is the efficacy around, uh, does the kid love learning? Because if we, if we, if the, if the student loves learning and their families are engaged in the process, then, then presumably outcomes will follow, right? So maybe that's the proxy for it. Um, but there is a big question, I think, in the ecosystem right now is when you take out students out of the system and they're in these really interesting learning experiences, what will be those measures? And so I appreciate sort of the, the, what you're thinking about. And I think there'll be continued work in this area um, to not hyper-focus on it, but also to say, is this quality? Because presumably, no matter what in this ecosystem, there's, as, as always has been, there's been out of school, providers that are not high quality and in-school providers that are not high quality. So let, let's, um, let's wrap. Thank you so much. This has been really interesting. Uh, and, and I've learned a ton about outschool.org and, and uh, a lot that I didn't know of before. So I, I really appreciate that. And I know our listeners will as well. I'd love to wrap with the, the, the questions that I typically end with, which is uh, one, what's your biggest takeaway message for our listeners uh, who are ed leaders and, and innovative school teachers and foundation folks who are out there listening to the podcast. And then the second is, is there an organization or person you'd love to amplify to our audience that may not get more airtime, a lot of airtime, but is doing incredible work for young people? So um, Morgan, I'll start with you. And then Justin, we'll, we'll finish up with you. Yeah, well, I'll start with the shout outs for sure. I mean, I think our hats off are to all, we're a new organization, right? We haven't been around all that long. And there are a lot of organizations that already had a very clear theory of action and were, you know, filled with assets that took a chance on us and partnering with us to create more liberatory learning experiences. And like, what a privilege that is to co-design alongside these like heroic families and really trusted and wise community leaders. So, you know, just, I could do this all day, but a shout out to, we already mentioned Bernita and the Engage Detroit team. They are, you know, an extension of our family. They have really been at the front sphere um, tip of Outbridge and really sort of helped us design it in a way where we feel like we were responsive to community voices so much so that we were asked to replicate Outbridge to other communities. So they were ground zero for a lot of the prototyping that we did. And Bernita is a force and her families were just instrumental in helping us, you know, sharpen our thinking around Outbridge. And then like you mentioned, like all of the organizations out there that are redefining learning and learning institutions on their own terms. So, you know, there are micro schools out there, there are homeschools out there. A lot was written about the, you know, explosion of black homeschooling in light of the pandemic. And, you know, I think some people kind of wondered, would they all return back to school when school, you know, reopened its doors and these families did not. They decided that they were going to trust in what they learned and what they were able to do. And these families, these, um, Black and Latinx families have decided to stay within their community to teach their children the way they think their children should be taught. And so 
the Black homeschooling community, you know, Melanin Village, Heritage Homeschoolers, Epic Homeschoolers that we got to work with last year have just been so instrumental in giving voice to a community that I think was more than just a headline, right? And we were able to work with them to see what their aspirations are for their students, not just during COVID, but for the rest of their sort of education journeys. Uh, that's great. I appreciate that. So many good people doing good work out there. Um, Justin, what do you have for us? Takeaway message, anyone you'd like to amplify or argue you'd like to amplify? Yeah, I mean, I think my takeaway lens is that we need to like widen our aperture of like where learning happens, right? And what learning qualifies as important and valuable, right? And I think that that message applies for everyone, including policymakers um, and also funders. I think that there is a, you know, I've spoken to a lot of micro schools, founders and leaders, and a lot of people in the space. And the common refrain is we don't know how to navigate this system, right, of trying to find funding, of trying to work with policies, because it's still applying the same lens of traditional K-12 education to what the work that they're doing when it is specifically meant to be pointing towards a new system that is not measured or assessed in the same way. And so I think that if we want to be supportive of unbundling learning and unbundling the ecosystem, we need to really redefine what learning means to us. And I think that that is a much more inclusive definition of what and where learning happens. And I think as, and then from there, right, we need to cascade how we assess, right, to your earlier question, Nate, and also how we prioritize um, what kinds of experiments we're going to run, but also um, what kinds of infrastructure are we going to put in place to allow these experiments to not just like spark up and then fizzle out, right? Which is what happens when we consider things as just experiments um, instead of kind of instead of making systemic kind of bigger bets and um, and not and I bet is even the wrong word, but just kind of putting our stake in the ground in terms of we're going to make a commitment to um, this type of of learning and. Um, and the families who choose that and also make it just more accessible as an option. Um, I think to the question of who are, who do I want to lift up? You know, I think I have to, I have to echo Morgan here. Um, you know, we are a new organization and we are supporting a, a kind of learning that has been around for a long time, but that is new for many people and new in terms of the level of attention that it's getting and in terms of its potential to be a catalyst for change within the education system. And so, you know, I think we had, what, more than 363 applications for our RFP or something of the sort. And so I want to give kudos to every one of those who applied and every one of those who even is, was qualified or thought of applying, but who didn't. Because I think those are the people who are out there who, who are really doing the day-to-day -day work of making this option available to families on the ground. And our work would not exist and there wouldn't be a need for our work if it weren't for those folks and those community organizations um, who have been doing this fight for years um, and who are now and who are and who we are now in a position to try to build an infrastructure for. Um, I think an example of that to name a name is, you know, someone who I met at ASU GSV. Last year, who runs Colossal Academy, right? A, for, a school, a Florida-based micro school, who I think to me just completely embodies the 
why people do this, right? And creating a micro school is not easy work. It is a personal, these are educators, they are entrepreneurs, they are investors, they are philanthropists, right? They're, they're doing it all, right? At the same time, while trying to feed themselves and their families. Um, but they're doing it for a very clear purpose. And, and part of that purpose is because they love the kids that they support. Um, and I think particularly for Black-led and minority-led micro schools, that is so outstandingly clear to me. Um, so just a huge kudos to every Black and minority-led micro school leader out there um, and educator and, and rep. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's my big, <laughs> my big hug of a shout out. Some good shout outs. We're feeling the love. Um, I really appreciate the time. I, I, I just, I had a, a couple of my big picture takeaways. Love starting with Kids Are Magic. Uh, appreciate that, Morgan. Um, I, I just, I, I'm really ruminating on this mission of we're talking so much um, about inspiring kids to love learning. Sure, right? Really important. We want every kid to love learning. And you all are hyper focused on making sure those that are traditionally marginalized, everybody gets the opportunity to love learning. And I just, I appreciate that as a takeaway. Uh, second takeaway is this idea of community-driven and liberatory um, that you all are providing sort of the ca some catalysts and some resources, but really fundamentally you're driving from the community up. Um, and I think that's a lesson that, that anyone who's listening to this podcast needs to continue to remember is to ask and listen, ask and listen, and value the expertise and the assets that are already in a community uh, before providing any input. And then the last, um, Justin, I, I really appreciate, there is so much talk about unbundling, but if there's no North Star for unbundling and where we're headed with it, it all could be for naught and we may end up in a place that's worse off than when we were you know, five years ago before this whole thing started. So I think as for, for listeners out there, remember what is the biggest North Star that we're looking for? How are we making sure that every student has the opportunity to make a difference in the world? Every student has the opportunity and agency um, to, to live a, a fruitful and, and, and great professional and personal life. So with that, uh, thank you both for your time. We went a little long, but it was an incredible conversation. Morgan, Justin, good luck with all the work that you do. We'll put a lot of show notes in here for anyone that you've amplified or mentioned. So anyone can go to uh, our, our site and click out and find all these great resources and people that Morgan and Justin have talked to. So thank you both and enjoy the day. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 